On our Wednesday night, current Wednesday night series, we're doing a family building class. Dan announced it a couple minutes ago. And I've been running tech for the family building class. By the way, youth, you can go ahead to your, uh, to your class now. Thank you. I've been running tech, which, by the way, if you're looking to hire me to run tech for one of your events, look somewhere else. I'm really not. I was not the first chosen. I was only the last man standing. So uh, as I fumble my way through it, and I have to call Matt about four times a night. Anyway, I'm sitting in the back of the room by the computer running the slides. And as I'm listening to Donna lead the, lead the group, Donna Drucker is one of our people. She's a licensed clinical social worker. She also teaches at FAU, and she's been doing a great job leading the parenting class. But I was thinking about some of the parenting lessons and some of the life lessons that people tried to teach me when I was a kid. And something that Donna said during the class kind of reminded me of one of the less pleasant moments that I have of my childhood. It's, it's the memory of one of my interactions, and I had many, but one of my interactions with a woman I'm going to call Mrs. Wilson. That is not her real name. She's no longer alive, but just in case any of her children are watching, um, I don't want to out her or anything like that. That's not a real name. But I'll never forget one of the many, many, many times that Mrs. Wilson scolded me while my parents were standing right there. Can you imagine scolding someone's child while their parents are standing right there? Well, she was one of those people. She was one of those people who felt like she was brought into the world to make sure that everyone else's kids behaved up to her standards. I'm not sure she applied the same standards to her own kids, but that's another story. Anyway, when I was a Cub Scout, so I was in about the third grade, we had a Christmas cookie exchange one year in our pack, pack 312. And when my plate was filled with all the cookies that everybody had brought in and all the cookies I picked up from each of the tables, my eight-year-old brain decided it would be a good idea to crunch up all those cookies into a pile and then just eat them, you know, with a spoon, like cereal, you know, like dopey eight-year-olds are wont to do. Well, when Mrs. Wilson saw what I had done with my cookies, she lost her mind. And so what she did was she grabbed me by the back of my collar, and at the very top of her lungs, and we're in a crowded room here, so at the very top of her lungs, she ordered me to bring my plate of cookie crumbs with her to the front of the room. So she's dragging me by my collar, I'm walking backwards. She brings me to the front of the room, and then she tells me, now I want you to tell every person who walks by what you did with your cookies. I guess she felt that my plan to eat them my way was too disrespectful to cookies or something like that. I'm still traumatized by that event. As you can tell, Mrs. Wilson thought that it was perfectly acceptable to discipline somebody else's child. I don't have fond memories of Mrs. Wilson, and I'm pretty sure that none of my other friends do either. Well, obviously, later on, I had kids of my own. When I had kids of my own, I was determined to never do that, and we never did. We never tried to make anybody else's children follow our rules. 
We didn't even have any rules for anybody else's kids. Because if you have rules for somebody else's kid, that is crazy. I hope you don't. The rules we had were for our children. And the rules for our children were to benefit our children alone. Well, today we're finishing up our series, Heaven, Who Goes There? So let's pray, and then I'll tell you what we'll be talking about today. Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us. Thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. I ask that um, your word today finds a root in someone's heart and helps them to navigate the life of a Jesus follower. Helps them to draw closer to you. Helps them to understand and know and love you more. We love you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far in this series, a quick recap, we've talked about how most Americans believe that there is some sort of heaven after this life. And along with that, we talked about how most Americans believe that they are going to be going to that heaven. And we talked about the fact that they assume they're going because of two things. First, they believe good people go to heaven. And second, they believe that they belong to the good people group. Now, as we've noted, that makes sense. Well, for one, it seems fair, right? If you live a good life and there is a heaven, you should go there because you're a good person. That's perfectly logical. And number two, if there is a good God, naturally, that good God would want good people who've lived a good life in his good heaven. So, according to this formula, you and just about everybody you know will make the list. You don't know what the specific qualifications are for making the list, but you're confident that you made it, yeah? You're a good person, maybe not as good as that person whom you personally think of as being the best person you know. We all have a best person we know in our minds, or if we think about it right, but you're better than most people. And you're thinking about who those other people are now, aren't you? And you're definitely good enough for God. So even though there's a cutoff, you're confident that you'll make it. And then you stop. This is about the deepest thinking you've ever done on the topic. And your assumptions have served you fine up until this moment. But as we've seen in parts one and two of this series, when you start to dig a little deeper, that system simply doesn't hold up. In week one, we saw that in reality, good is a moving target. Good changes over time. Good changes over, over geography. Good changes over history. Good changes from culture to culture. But then we saw that the ways people have treated women and children and each other have varied greatly. And the things that we think are bad can be the same things that other people have thought of or continue to think of as good. Sometimes, others even think of the things we think of as bad. They think of those things as being good or as being in accordance with the will of God or at least with the will of their God or God's. And even though many Americans will argue that good isn't a moving target, because the Bible tells us what's good and what's bad, that's not actually accurate. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the first part of our, new, of our Holy Bible, <clears throat> it doesn't even really mention heaven the way we know heaven. 
And it doesn't contain a list of things that, if we'll do those things, will guarantee our admission into that heaven. And in the New Testament, Jesus' followers were sure to point out that nobody is good enough to earn their way into heaven. And that moves us even farther away from the answer to the question, how good is good enough to go to heaven? We also considered whether, given our supposedly logical approach to who goes to heaven, the New Testament actually points to what we would even consider a good God. Because as we saw, God did not make it clear to anyone looking to the New Testament for a standard of behavior as to what's necessary for entry into heaven. And then what about the other factors in making his determination? Does God consider other things? Does he consider our age? Does he consider our intent? Does he consider the way we were raised, our upbringing? Does he consider the culture in which we came out of or in which we live? And if the argument of so many people that the times have changed, if that argument is accurate, does God keep up with those changing times? I mean, wouldn't a good God keep up with the changing times and just keep on showing up and letting us know that the standards of human behavior are keeping up with the times and therefore good keeps changing and we have to keep showing up time after time and tell us, now this is good, now that's bad, now this is good. And finally, as, as Pastor Dan talked about last time, if good people are the ones who go to heaven, then Jesus got it all wrong. Because Jesus didn't teach that at all. In fact, Jesus taught the exact opposite of that. Jesus taught that bad people can end up in heaven, and some very bad people just might. In fact, throughout his ministry, Jesus raised the bar for good so high that it makes all of us look bad. For instance, and we talked about this last time I was up here, have you ever mistreated another person? You don't have to think about it. You have. Everyone has. We all have. And Jesus placed that sin at the core of all the sins because when you mistreat another person, you've mistreated a person whom God the Father loves. And according to Jesus, you can't be right with God the Father if you're mistreating someone God loves. Just like you can't be right with me if you're mistreating my children. You with me so far? All right. So now, what if you're not a Jesus follower? Does any of this stuff apply to you? Well, you've certainly heard Christians tell you it certainly does. And you've certainly heard Christians say that we're the only ones who are right about, and we're the only ones who are right with God, and that has bothered you. Because even though you've heard us say that, you've also seen us mistreat other people. Well, that bothered Jesus, too. Jesus had no patience for the believe-only, do-nothing religion of so many people of his day. It was actually the thing that Jesus was most critical of. Jesus was most critical of the good people because they were good for nothing. They did nothing for anybody but themselves. And Jesus, Jesus made it clear that their proper beliefs and their proper theology meant nothing if they mistreated other people. Jesus told them that that sort of behavior made them nothing more than whitewashed tombs. Nice and tidy on the outside, 
and thoroughly rotten and filled with decay on the inside. According to Jesus, no one is good enough to go to heaven. And as a result, and it's here that we left off last week, according to Jesus, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Forgiven people go to heaven. And Jesus said that he had the authority to forgive people on behalf of God the Father. And then he confirmed his authority when he predicted his own death and his own resurrection, and both came to pass. So by his death and resurrection, Jesus proved that he has the authority to forgive people on behalf of God the Father. So for the rest of today, we're going to put a bow on this discussion of heaven and take a look at the connection between the Jewish tradition and the faith of the Jesus follower. And in order to do that, as I promised, we're going to dig into the question that leads to so much confusion about how good a person has to be to go to heaven. And the specific question we'll be looking at is, if rule keeping is not going to get you to heaven, then why are there so many rules? And where did we get the idea that if we're good enough, we'll go to heaven? Well, as I promised back in week one, to answer this question, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. This is the list of rules that many people swear by, but they most certainly don't live by. This is the list about which people say, yeah, I just keep the Ten Commandments, while they're secretly thinking whatever they say. So here's what you need to know about the Ten Commandments. And you notice I put them up there in Hebrew so you couldn't just know them by looking at them. That's why I did that. But here's what you need to know about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are found in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. They're found in the book that we call Exodus. Now, the name Exodus derives from the Greek word exodos, which means to exit, or it means departure. Makes sense, right? We get exodus because that's the Latin translation. We end up with the word exodus from the Greek exodos. The Jews called, and they still call, the book Shemot. Shemot is the Hebrew word, which means names. Names, where does that come from? Well, it's found in the first verse of the book of Exodus. By the way, in Genesis, they call the book Bereshith, which means beginnings. And the beginning words of Genesis, it says in the beginning. So that's why they call it that. So here, this is called names. Exodus 1.1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob each with his family. So you see, to the ancient Hebrew mind, a name didn't just identify a person, it also spoke to the person's character or the person's destiny. For example, Moses, Moshe in Hebrew, Moshe in Hebrew, means drawn out. And Moses was indeed drawn out of the water, and then his life was used to draw Israel out of Egypt. Jesus' name, his Hebrew name is actually Yeshua, which means salvation. Jesus was named salvation and brought salvation. Now, the book of Exodus chronicles ancient Israel's exodus from Egyptian slavery. Remember how that happened? Briefly, God called a man named Abram, who he later changed his name to Abraham, and he told him, Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, 
and you will be a blessing. Have you all heard of Abram, Abraham before? Have you all heard of him? Anybody not heard of him? Of course not. You've heard of him. That's because God did indeed make his name great. God made Abraham famous. Well, Abraham had a family, and one of his great-grandsons was named Joseph. And Joseph took the whole family to Egypt. And after a while, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, thought that there were just too many of Abraham's descendants. And he began to worry that they would try to overthrow him. You see, immigration has been an issue for thousands and thousands of years, right? He was worried that they'd try to overthrow him. So what did he do? He enslaved all of Abraham's descendants. And they remained enslaved for over 400 years. And then God called Moses, who went to Pharaoh and said in Exodus 9-1, Let my people go, that they might worship me. So eventually, after a bunch, which we won't go into today, Pharaoh let the people go. And Moses led the nation out. They exited, hence Exodus. Now, Inasmuch as they'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, they didn't have a law. They didn't have a civil law. They didn't need a civil law because they weren't governing themselves. So when they left Egypt, there were a lot of people. Some sources say that about 2 million people left Egypt at that time. So God gave Moses laws in order to constitute a nation and in order to direct the citizens of that nation as to how they should conduct themselves, including laws regarding their punishment, and they fail to follow the laws that God gave them. Now, every society needs to have governing structure. And the laws that God gave to the Israelites were some of the most advanced laws the world had ever seen. There were some parts of the law that God gave Israel that did not appear in other human civilizations for another 1,400 years. That's how advanced God's laws were for Israel. For example, there were laws regarding slaves and slavery that the world had never seen before. Now, before I tell you about them, please note that the slavery that is mentioned in the Old Testament, so I've heard many, many times people make the argument, well, wait a minute, how can I believe the Old Testament? It encourages slavery. It, it promotes slavery. It has no problem with slavery. Those laws, that the slavery mentioned in the Mosaic Law is not the same kind of chattel slavery that was happening in other parts of the world or that's still happening in other parts of the world. It's a different kind of slavery. It's not the same kind of slavery that existed in this country until 1865. That's human chattel slavery. And human chattel slavery was not permitted under the law of Moses. Don't miss that. Calling something slavery in English does not encompass all the types of slavery in the world. Human chattel slavery, owning a human and forcing the human to do work without any chance of being released is not permitted under the law of Moses. The slavery that the Israelites experienced in Egypt was not permitted under the laws of Moses. The slavery about which the Old Testament speaks is a debt slavery or an indentured servitude. And it permitted people to actually sell themselves or sell their children, sell certain family members into that slavery in order to pay off a debt that is owed. It also permitted slaves to buy themselves out of their slavery. That was not permitted under chattel slavery in America, and it isn't permitted all over the world. And it was the Old Testament that introduced the idea that slaves or servants actually had rights 
which up until that time was absolutely unheard of. Indeed, many of the ancient Hebrew laws have been adopted into modern laws that are used in the world today. But check this out, and this is really interesting. This Mosaic law that is so important and, and identifies the Jewish people so closely and so clearly, it wasn't even brought up in the book of Exodus until chapter 20. So you go, all right, well, what was going on in the first 19 chapters of the book then? Well, in the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus, God was demonstrating his love for a group of people whom he considered to be his own. And it was during that time that God delivered those people. And I hope you can see this. God didn't deliver his people because they kept the law. That would have been impossible because they didn't have the law yet. When God delivered his people, as we read about in Exodus, they didn't have the law. God delivered his people from Egypt solely because he loved them and he wanted to deliver them. So when it comes to God, the God we worship as followers of Jesus, relationship always precedes rules. Always. God did not give Israel the law in order to establish a relationship with him. God gave Israel the law because they were already in a relationship with him. It was not a condition to his love. It was a confirmation of his love. As I said at the beginning, we disciplined our own children, we have two sons, because they were our own. And we loved our children because they were our own. And we didn't have our children just because we had some laws that were dying to be followed and we needed to have children to follow them. We didn't do that. So about three or so months after the Jews left Egypt, Moses led them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there, and there God provided them with this extraordinarily detailed law. And he did so in order to guide his people. Now we're going to read it and I want you to note how it begins. And I particularly want you to note how it doesn't begin. This is where the law comes into play. It's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Here's how it starts. I am the Lord your God. In other words, we already have a relationship established. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God said to his people, I am your God, and in case you've forgotten, I rescued you from Pharaoh, and I set you free. Not too long ago, you were enslaved by Pharaoh. You had no freedom, no future, no hope, and no home. And now, you belong to me. And you belong to me without me requiring anything of you except a single sign of trust. All I ask that you do is in trust of me, paint the blood of a Passover lamb over the doorpost of your home, down the sides of your doorposts, as a sign of your trust in me. You did it, and now you're with me. Now you're in. You're assured that I only have the best for you in mind, and now I want you to follow and obey me. And only then do we get to the first commandment. So you see... 20 chapters, got 19 chapters full. We start off and say, I'm your God. We're in a relationship already. You've already proven your love for me. Now I'm going to show you what the laws are. We get to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Now that you know who I am, don't look to any other God. And the Jews are like, yeah, no kidding. I mean, we saw what you did to Egypt's gods. You rescued us. You didn't let anything stop you, not even the Pharaoh's army. You're awesome. And while we're so familiar with the story, it seems almost matter-of-fact to us, that was a revolutionary concept 3,400 years ago. In ancient days, there were gods everywhere for everything. There were gods for the seasons. There were gods for natural phenomena, for the sun, for the wind, for the winter. There were gods for lightning and gods for thunder. There were gods for each family. Each family had their own special gods. There were gods for pieces of land. There were idols made to dead ancestors. And people worshipped those idols. There were gods for kingdoms. There were gods for nations. Certain rulers considered themselves to be gods. The Roman rulers considered themselves to be gods or sons of gods. And if you went to another nation, you didn't bring your god with you. You just adopted the god of the other nation. So the fact that our god, God the Father, showed up in Egypt and outdid every other Egyptian god was unprecedented and amazing. Which brings us to the second commandment, which flows from the first one. I am the Lord your God, and you're only going to worship me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth below or in the waters below. You cannot represent me accurately, so don't try worshiping an idol that you think kind of sort of looks like me. The world had never heard anything even remotely like this. The ancients couldn't even fathom the idea of a system of worship without an idol to look upon. When invaders sacked the temple at one point and they looked in the Holy of Holies and they didn't see an idol, they said, what's wrong with these Jews? They don't even have a God. And it wouldn't be long before the Israelites broke this commandment. If you remember the golden calf, they couldn't even fathom the idea of not having an idol to worship. But God was telling them, I am the only object of your worship. Don't even try to turn me into a little idol that you think you can control, you can contain, you can put in your pocket and travel with. Don't even think about it. This notion was so revolutionary that it would not catch on with any other Gentile cultures for nearly 2,000 more years. Jumping ahead, a few commandments later, and everyone knows this one, God would throw another unheard of unprecedented commandment at them. God would invent the weekend. Do you know that God invented the weekend? God invented the weekend. So every Friday night through Sunday night, you should say, thank you, God. Here's how he invented it. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God on it. You shall not do any work. God told them, take the day off. That's what he said. I know it's hard to fathom, but nobody got a day off before this, ever. No one got a day where they just didn't work. That wasn't a thing. Why would anyone ever not work? If you don't work, how do you eat? If you don't work, how do things get accomplished? But God was telling them, I want to prove to you that I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to take care of you. So take a day off. Take a break. And with this, God was beginning to teach them something. God was beginning to teach them that he cared for them. He cared for each and every one of them. 
And the Sabbath was God's way of showing his people that every one of them was valuable to him. And this law revealed an ethic and a value system that they had never heard of before. The world had never seen before. Trusting in God to the point of letting him care for them? That is amazing. And honestly, people still to this day have a tough time with this one. Oh, I'm just too busy to take the day off. Oh, I never take a weekend. I will always work through the weekends. Now, of the remaining seven commandments, one forbade them from misusing the Lord's name. And the other six basically point to how to treat and honor other people. Honor your parents. Don't murder anyone. It doesn't say kill. It says murder. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't take anything that isn't yours. Don't lie. And don't long for anything that belongs to someone else. So if we had to sum them all up in the first four commandments, God told them to honor him because he rescued them from bondage. And in the next six commandments, God told them to honor others because they're made in God's image. And the Ten Commandments were just the beginning, just the introduction. There are 603 additional laws included or at least implied in the rest of the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why is that? Because for the most part, the Torah contained the civil law for the nation of Israel. And the civil law had to impact every aspect of life for the newly liberated Hebrews. God cared for his people so much that he made sure not to leave them to their own devices. To God, his his relationship with his people was of primary importance. And he implemented the rules that governed them in order to protect and support that relationship, which stands to reason. Because with God, relationship always precedes rules. All to say that the Israelites did not behave their way into a relationship with God. And the Israelites never severed that relationship by their misbehavior. Now, you'll see evidence of that throughout the Old Testament. God blessed his people. They became complacent. They ignored God. God got their attention. They returned to God. God blessed them again over and over and over again, thereby teaching them the lesson that when they chose to move away from God and his law, they chose to move away from the freedom that being connected to God provided. God never turned his back on his people because God made them a promise that he would never do so. And God's people were God's people before he ever gave them the first rule. And roughly 1,400 years after Moses, God changed the trajectory of his people. And it was during a Passover celebration when Jesus gathered in an upper room with the 12 disciples in Jerusalem. Now everybody here knows, because we do this once a month, sometimes more, Everyone knows that Passover was the annual celebration of God delivering the nation of, the nation of Israel from the bondage in Egypt. And he was delivering them to the freedom of the land God had promised, the promised land. But when Jesus and the disciples were celebrating the Passover, they didn't have freedom. They were living under the heel of the oppressive Roman Empire. But that didn't stop them from celebrating all that God had done for their people in the past. Now, Passover is one of the Jewish pilgrimage holidays. It meant that Jews from all over the region would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And they celebrated the Passover in the same fashion that their ancestors had done for centuries. Well, on that Thursday night, Jesus 
calling the disciples together to celebrate the Passover, the disciples weren't expecting anything different. But then Jesus said something unexpected to them, something so outrageous that the disciples would have been well within their rights when they heard him say it to get up and walk out of the room. Jesus said to them, Boys, from today on, when you celebrate the Passover, don't do it to commemorate the way that God freed our people from bondage 1,400 years ago. We're changing things up. From now on, when you gather to celebrate the Passover, fellas, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. In other words, what God did for, people, for our people centuries ago He's about to do for the entire world. He's going to invite the entire world to embrace a single expression of trust that will bring them into a relationship with God our Father. He told them that the sharing of the bread of affliction, the matzah, that it always represented the first act through which slaves become free human beings. Because one who fears tomorrow does not offer his bread to others. But one who's willing to divide his food with a stranger has already shown himself capable of fellowship as well as faith. And those are two things from which hope is born. This would from then on represent the sharing of the ultimate hope of the world. The arrival of the promised Messiah who'd come to set all of God's people free from their bondage to sin. And then Jesus took the cup, the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption always reminded the Hebrew people of the way that God had split the sea, which allowed the Jews to leave Egypt safely and then closed up the area, which allowed the Jews to feel completely redeemed without fear of the Egyptians recapturing them. The road to them was cut off. But on that evening, Jesus told them that the cup of redemption was to be known henceforth as the cup of the new covenant, a new relationship achieved through the shedding of his blood for his people so that they'd know they were completely redeemed from the bondage of sin, never to be taken under its yoke again. Now, they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about at that moment, but a few days later, they would. Just before their exodus from Egypt, God had the people show their faith that faith that, would, that he would rescue them. And they showed it by painting that Passover lamb's blood on their doorposts. And 1,400 years later, John the Baptist, when, arriving, when announcing the arrival of Jesus, told them, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At that Passover, at Jesus' last supper, they were all finally starting to connect the dots. The story of the nation of Israel led to the story unfolding in their midst. The Lamb of God had come to redeem all of God's people through himself. Jesus was telling them that in the same way that God delivered their people from slavery in Egypt, he was going to deliver the world from their slavery to and from the ultimate consequences of sin in the same manner, through their faith and through their trust in him. Now, the Apostle Paul, who at one time counted himself among the most strident, the most observant Pharisees, he was opposed to Jesus. And he understood exactly what Jesus was talking about when Jesus said that. Paul understood the connection between what, had God, between what God had done for the nation 1,400 years before and what God had done through Jesus for the entire world. And to that end, Paul wrote this in Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, as comforting as this verse is for us, to be assured that we don't have to clean up our own behavior in order to avail ourselves of what Jesus did for us on the cross, for Paul, it hit even closer to home. You see, for Paul, Paul was alive when Jesus was crucified. Paul was literally, if you watch Parks and Rec, dragging Jesus' people to their death around the same time Jesus was alive. But after Jesus appeared to Paul while he was on the road to arrest more Jesus followers, Paul had a stunning realization. Even though God knew that Paul was a true enemy of Jesus, Jesus died for Paul anyway. I mean, imagine what Paul must have been thinking. You have to imagine it, just read it. While Paul was still God's enemy, Jesus died for him. And Jesus died for us in the same way. Paul knew better than anyone that his scrupulous keeping of the law as a Pharisee brought him absolutely no peace. When you're trying to work your way into God's good graces, you just never know where you stand. You just never know if you have more work to do. That doesn't make you good. That just makes you judgmental. It just makes you think that you can mistreat the people whom God loves and still be okay with God. And Jesus let Paul know it doesn't work that way. So this is what it all comes down to. How do you find peace with God? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God the Son. That is the gospel message. That is the good news. We can't behave our way into God's family any more than my two sons behaved their way into mine. And there's more good news of this gospel message. Not only can't we behave our way in, we can't misbehave our way out. Just as our own children can't misbehave their way out of my family. I am their father and they are my children, notwithstanding anything they've done. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, God did something for us. He didn't require something from us to make things even. God is offering us a gift, and that gift is ours to take. Jesus didn't ask us for better behavior. Jesus asked us for faith, and it's through our faith that we are born again into a new life as a child of God. The law was nothing more than a confirmation of God's love for his people. But God is inviting us to be born again into his family. So if you're wondering where you stand with God, and you keep looking to how well you're doing, according to Jesus, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. With the law, God was not attempting to make bad people good. With the law, God was keeping free people free. And that goes for us too. With God, as with all good parents, relationship always precedes the rules. God gave us his law because he loves us and wants the absolute best for us. Because God loves us, he wants to forgive. He wants us to forgive. He wants us to serve each other. He wants us to learn to love our enemies. And he wants us to examine our own faults and flaws before we attempt to examine the faults and flaws of another. Because God loves us and knows exactly what will bring us the most happiness, fulfillment, and peace in this life, God gave us commandments. And we can decide to follow him out of our gratitude once we've understood that. 
Jesus summarized it all when he said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. In the earliest of Paul's writings, before the Gospels were even written, Paul was writing to some believers who were living in a culture where they were just a small minority. And when advising the believers on how to live in a society that is hostile to their faith, listen, how to live in a society that is hostile to their faith, this is what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Catch that, Paul said, just quietly do your Jesus thing. Take care of your family, take care of your business, and you will win the respect of other people who don't share your faith. Has that been in the Bible the whole time? Seriously, where do we get the idea of anything else? Where did anyone get the idea that it's our calling to break our necks, trying to impose our rules on people who aren't even a part of our family? I've been asking myself that question for almost 30 years now. And if you're here today and you're not yet a part of God's family, first off, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. And second, even though you're not a part of God's family yet, God still loves you. And he's inviting you to join him by simply acknowledging the truth about who you are, an imperfect person who can't possibly follow all of God's laws, and the truth about God, that he loved us, his image bears so much that he sent his son to live, die, and rise again so you could be connected to him forever. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Who goes to heaven? Forgiven people go to heaven. And how do we find forgiveness? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've learned today, as well as the courage to do it. And Father, for the person listening today for whom there was something that for the first time clicked, please give them the courage to take the next step and to tell somebody that, we have, that they have. God, we're grateful that you've chosen to call us to yourself because you know that we'll never be good enough to be connected to you on our own. God, thank you for your grace and thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.